Like I've been thinking about this, like with regenerative agriculture and with the kind of gardening that I and many people I know are are doing where you have very many things growing and you also encourage the surrounding environment to be alive. Like you want to have spaces where many different kinds of insects and beetles can inhabit and that's both beneficial for your garden but it's also beneficial for many other species. But there is also, like, we built cities, I think, because we're also very afraid of nature. Like, I was shocking being stung by a bumblebee. And I love bumblebees. But still, it gives me a moment of, like, danger. And that the more living the environment becomes, the more other species we'll be living with. And that that is not a simple thing either. Like, we've gotten rid of most of the animals which we consider to be dangerous. We can't stand living with nature, actually. And that, I'm like, wow, that is a tension that is super exciting. And I hope that it's, and like, I'm not going to be, I can't tell a story to solve that thing. But I hope, I hope that we can have a really creative relationship to nature that's new, actually. A new story. There, I I think that we need a new story, really, if we're going to move forward. My name is Matthias Olsson, and I'm the host of the Campfire podcast. Welcome to this episode with biodynamic gardener and food fermentation specialist Bridget Lefebvre. This conversation took place in Bridget's greenhouse in Järna, Sweden. It was made for a film on Bridget and her work, a film titled Into the Soil, which is now available at Campfire Stories. This conversation, though, is so full of wisdom and wonderings, and there was only a part of it that could fit into the film. And so I wanted to release it here in its entirety. Before we get into it, I'd like to take this opportunity to mention that Campfire Stories and the Campfire Podcast is a community-supported endeavor. If you would like to support my ability to keep making these films and audio episodes... I warmly welcome your one-time donation, which you can make at the website. You can also become a monthly supporter using our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Matthias Olson. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash M-A-T-T-I-A-S-O-L-S-S-O-N. Double T, double S. Yes, sir. Um, In case you're listening to this through your podcast player, you can um, head on over to the Campfire Stories website at campfire-stories.org where you can watch all of our films and make donations. And if you're listening from within the Campfire Stories website already, well, then you're already on the site where you can watch all of our films and choose whether you want to make a donation. 
All right, enough with all of these practicalities. I hope you will enjoy this this conversation as much as I did. Lots and lots of love to you and thank you for being you and for being here. All right, well, so here we are. Uh, Maybe can you begin by just giving a little bit of a background, like you're from Ireland, like where, how, how was your upbringing? Like, I, I know that's a very broad question, yeah. all of it, but just like a little yeah. bit of a flavor of wh- where you're from and, and like yeah, some early, all right, I'll shut up now. <laughs> um, yeah, I come from Ireland or I was born in Ireland in a Camp Hill community, which is a... Um, uh anthroposophically inspired community where or like a village we called it a village actually where families live together with people with special needs and um it's quite self-sufficient so we had a biodynamic farm and biodynamic garden and there was a weavery and a store and it was an incredibly protected environment it was kind of similar to this, like small paths and trees, and it was right by the sea. Um, So I grew up in a little oasis in Ireland, I would say. And my parents are not from Ireland, so I was quite disconnected from Irish culture, actually, Northern Irish culture, which was also, I think, quite conscious. I grew up in the, at the end of the troubled, more troubled time in Northern Ireland. So we didn't often go into cities because it was still very dangerous when I was a child. Um, Yeah, I lived in Ireland for the first 18 years of my life and then I moved to England because I wanted to continue in the Waldorf education system and that was only available up to the age of 16 in Ireland. So I moved to England and then I moved to Scotland to go to university and then I moved to Sweden. And there's lots of stories in between. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so funny when you describe the community in Northern Ireland where you grew up, mm-hmm. that it just sounds kind of exactly like the community that you've moved to here in Sweden. Very mm-hmm. similar. Yes and no. Okay. Um, like it was a very intentional community there like with community meetings every week and with a very thought out uh, structure and with no, with a completely different economic system also. How do you mean different? Um, my parents who still work for the community or now they're, they're um, retired in a sense, but um, my parents and all everyone else who worked there worked voluntarily. There was no wages and there was no exchange of money at all. Like we had a store and that store brought in bulk organic produce. And then we went and like took a scoopful of nuts or a scoopful of rice and weighed it and then wrote down the, the price in a book. So each household had a page in a book in the store where you just wrote down what you'd taken. And each year, each household would make an assessment of approximately how much finances they would need but there was no actual 
money. So there would be like a budgeting for each each household community. Sounds like heaven. Or, Why would you leave? <laughs> <laughs> because it wasn't heaven. <laughs> no. Um, well, for one, it wasn't... It wasn't really available for us to stay. That was also... It was an intentional, intentional community for living and working together with people with special needs. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't really designed to accommodate the children of the people who made that decision. Mm-hmm. Also, it's completely collapsed now. Oh. There is almost no campus left. Oh. Because of um, connection, like um, the state got more involved mm. over the years. Like first giving funding and then um, making rules about how to care for people with special needs. And Camp Hill came in at a time when it was still okay to lock up people. Like the Camp Hill came at a time when people's attitude towards people with Down syndrome or autism was like we can't unrecognizable to us now. Mm. And they came in really like a light. Like these people have, we can learn everything we need to know by living and working together with people with special needs. Mm. So it was amazing at the time. And then um, things have happened. Now we don't have those attitudes like people. Yeah. I don't know. Mm. It's uh, I'm not sure how far down that path we should go. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but in, in the, the years in between, I have really started to appreciate some of the aspects of Camp Hill, like the bravery of the whole initiative, which started in 1936 mm. as an answer to the, to the Second World War, the invasion in, uh, into Austria. Like it was like an answer of a group of people that were like, we need to create a, an impulse which is completely opposite to, mm. to um, what the Nazis are all about. And then also everything around, like the structure of the community and also the economic structure that I'm really more and more have been thinking about. Mm. That I grew up in an environment without money is, has had a hugely, a huge effect on me. I'm really grateful that I have an opportunity to, or I wasn't born on the, what did you call it, in, in the list of questions you sent. I wasn't exactly born into the old story. Right. So I have an opportunity to, I don't have to break all my old references because I have different references. Hmm. So um, with all those things that you said about the, the com- community where you grew up, Mm-hmm. With the, with the not having money and and all of those things, what do you think can? Because we're living today in a, in a situation that's falling apart more and more, societally and ecologically and and in other ways. What do you think we can learn in going forward from from your past? Mm. There's a couple of things, like um, with the project that I'm running now, Fredlad, uh, which is a CSA, that I, I feel like very, it comes from many different places, but it definitely also comes from Camp Hill. Because Maybe you should explain what a CSA, CSA is, is, just in case. community-supported agriculture. And in the context of Camp Hill, the community that I grew up in, which there are many of all over Europe and the world, um, then 
this, the community supports the farm and the garden. That's, it's completely intrinsic to the community that in the center you have the farm and the garden and that there would be a question of market connected to food is completely, it should never, it was never part of my childhood and it's not part of the Camp Hill model. And that I feel like is sound. Like it really works and it has to be like that. Like I'm separating food from the market. I think is definitely a lesson that from, I want to see. From the economic market. From the economic market, yeah. That you should put pressure on the people who are um, maintaining the land and providing food and providing habitat and also force them to know about and to engage in the economic market and competition, I think, is crazy. And it puts a, a crazy pressure on the environment that you, you're forcing people to force environment into shapes that it doesn't want to take and that no farmer wants to put it in, I don't think, either, mm. or gardener. So that's one thing. And the other thing, which I feel is super important, and I don't have such a clear idea of how that would happen, but it is working together with people with special needs, living together. Like, I... I've also realized that to grow up side by side with people who are have a completely different way of seeing reality, communicating, like maybe without speech, ability physically to walk or not to walk, has and without anyone telling me that they were less or different or not normal, has also been an, an unbelievable gift that I wish that other people could experience. But yeah, living together with difference in such a dramatic way is very helpful mm. uh, yeah so that would be that would be good um all right do you want to stay on the on this on this topic on this topic for a bit or um Because I also just realized I have about 15 questions and we're on question number two. We're not yet oh. on question number two. <laughs> okay. Um, I can say just one last thing yeah. about the, the spiritual aspect. And that's the relationship to nature. Mm. Like that, that there are energies and beings that are all around us all the time. Um, and that that was an alive idea in the community that I grew up in. Mm. That spaces were... Like, for me, it was so alive. It's also actually quite alive in Irish culture mm. that there are beings that are connected to certain trees and certain spaces. So that also went, fitted very easily together, I think. Um, but to have that as such a uncriticized reality is very nice. Like, it, it changes, it very quickly changes relationship to, to the environment that you're in. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Hmm? Um, all right. Do you want to give us a quick little, uh, if it's possible, uh, like a condensed, like how did you end up in Sweden? Like how did that come hmm? about? Well, that is a good story, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to remind me of that sentence, though, that you wrote. When did you step off the the old story? Yeah, when... 
And how the old yeah that was, I thought did about you leave that, the old story behind that I have only had short flirtations with the old story, mm. and um, after I finished you, what, four years of university, what, what do I mean the, by that? What does the old story mean to you? Ooh, can we go back to that question? Yes. I'm not. I'll tell you the the story yeah. of getting to Sweden yeah. first. Yeah. Um, but after university. I studied in Aberdeen, Scotland for four years and I had a wonderful time and wonderful friends and at the end of it I had an apartment also um, and that I started thinking wow maybe well I have this great council apartment it's very cheap I have good friends I could just get a job here and stay and then I woke up literally woke up in the middle of the night screaming no and it was very clearly about that I was like no Bridget you are going backpacking you are giving up your apartment you are getting rid of all your things and you are taking your guitar on the road so I booked a bus trip to Amsterdam for when I was finishing so that was like and then I yeah organized and very quickly got rid of all my stuff and my apartment and then I started busking around Europe, which I did for six months. I visited people like I didn't, I don't know if I wasn't that brave, but I went to visit my cousin and I went to friends in Berlin and then I went to friends in Finland. And when I was in Finland, I took part in a busking competition at a rock festival called Ilosauri Rock in Joensu, which I won. And the prize was to come back the following autumn to record, to have one week in a studio mm. recording. Um, so in between, at the time I wasn't flying. I didn't fly for many years after, like from about the middle of my university years after a lecture from a soil scientist. Um, but I hitchhiked all the way back to Ireland and then through England. And then I hitch hitchhiked all the way back. And on the way, I met Moira, who lives in Jana now, an English girl. And she lived in Jana, which I'd never heard of. Sweden was not on my radar at all. And then we realized that Jana is on the way to Finland if you're hitchhiking, almost unavoidably if you're hitchhiking from, because you have to take the E4 and then the boat. Mm. Um, so on my way to do this recording in Finland, then I stopped over in the middle of November for two days with her. And she was working at Skilebu Trekord. Mm. And it was very snowy. It was like very high snow, super cold, minus 10. The moon was up. A moose walked across the field. It was like... <laughs> it was... Uh, totally magical and then she said why don't you ask the gardener here if you can get a job here like because you grew up with biodynamic agriculture like a quick pass because usually he only takes uh he only took people who were studying mm. at Skilleby and so I did that and he said yes so I went I did my recording in Finland and then I moved straight back to Sweden mm. without anywhere in between and that was 12 years ago um, so I had a question written down 
but now I understand why I don't need to ask that question, but I'll ask it anyway, um, which is like, why, what is it about the biodynamic way of farming that attracts you? That attracts me. Mm. Um, one thing is, I don't know why this Camp Hill thing has become central to this uh, conversation, <laughs> but it's there now. Yeah. But when I grew up, that was just agriculture. That was the normal way to grow, to have fields and farms and animals and vegetables, and that we would go out as a community and spray the preparations a couple of times a year all together. Um, Maybe, was, do, you, do you want to also just briefly, I mean, I've made a whole film about what is biodynamic. Yeah. Farming, but just briefly, what is biodynamic farming for somebody who maybe doesn't really know? And I know that's difficult to, to yeah, shorten. It is. <laughs> it is difficult. Um, now, I've, I've, I've spent years thinking, I'm going to sit down and write, what is biodynamic agriculture briefly? Like just <laughs> to be able to answer that question. But I haven't gotten around to it actually. So I'll just say a couple of things about it, maybe. But um, it's like the environment is a a living. Everything is alive and connected. Like all things are one. There are many other traditions that have the same foundation, and we are affected by and always connected to the entire cosmos. And uh, biodynamics is uh, different methods which are developed from that understanding. Um, and like practically, there it's very connected to animals and to plants, especially certain plants that accompany agriculture often like nettles and dandelions and yarrow that are wild plants, but they're not really in the wild. They are on the periphery of, of agriculture. And they have properties, um, both physical properties that people have used a lot in herbal medicine. Um, they have properties in connection to the soil. And then from the biodynamic uh, perspective, they have cosmic properties also. Like they are connected to certain planets in certain ways or, yeah. There are many different ways that you can think inside the framework of biodynamics. Um, and it is, it gives an immense freedom, I think, when you ex when you accept or live in the reality that everything is alive and everything is connected. And that's also including the cosmos. Like it's very expansive um, way of seeing. I feel an enormous freedom in that when I'm feeling attacked by different bugs or things then I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm allowed to have that feeling of being attacked. Like I'm also participating in this, me and all of my anxieties or stresses and we are in a some spiel like we're in relationship and then if I allow those things to be then suddenly I see like I'm released from that perspective of like 
like tight and controlling. Mm. And then I can lift out and see us all in a more or less. Ah, the Swedish words are coming. <laughs> harmonious, more or less harmonious dance. You can throw in the Swedish words every now and then. I'll just subtitle it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> That's how I would briefly describe biodynamic agriculture. Mm, thank you. That was beautiful. Mm. Um, do you think... We can get rid of the bee. We can get rid of the bee, yeah. <laughs> I will try. It is actually quite hard because they often... Um, they have quite a lot of place to fly up to. Yeah. While we're finding that bee and releasing it to the outside world, I'd like to take a little bit of a break and tell you a story. So when I started doing research about Bridget and started thinking about reaching out to her for an interview, I was scrolling through her Instagram and there was this one post that caught my attention. It was a video post where uh, Bridget had filmed a group of musicians who one day had come up to her while she was working in the garden asking her if they could play her a song. And I could tell that the song was really beautiful, but the uh, the audio quality wasn't that great because it was just shot with a cell phone. But I just kept that with me. And when I did eventually reach out to Bridget and ask her about uh, setting up a time for this interview, I also asked her about that, that group of musicians and that song. And we decided to to try and find the musicians again, and, and we did. It turned out they were uh, students at the nearby youth initiative program, and we asked them if they could come back to Bridges Garden and play the song again. And uh, that time I would be there uh, recording it with my video gear and audio gear. There's actually, if you'd like to see the video version of it, you can find it on the Campfire Stories YouTube page. But for now and for here, I will leave you with the audio uh, of it. Um, the song is called uh, Song to the Earth. And after the song, we'll resume the interview with Bridget. I How 
arrived now again at the question that you liked uh, so I'll just ask that again and with the wording that I sent you yesterday uh, at what moment did you step out of the old story well it, it, it's not exactly not that I didn't like it but um, that I wasn't quite able to place myself in the old story and then you asked, what do you mean then? What, how, what is the old story? And I think the old story is where we live in a constricting world that is doing its absolute best to deny us any possibility for creativity in the way that we choose to live. And I see that happening, especially, and I don't, I find it especially in the need to make money. And I totally understand. And I don't blame anyone for living in that reality. I think it's something which has been constructed, not accidentally, but it's, it's not anyone's fault. And I, just because I don't feel like I'm necessarily always there. All right, Maybe I haven't, I don't, I haven't quite understood why people feel that so insecure about money. But I see that as the old story. 
But I also can't convince anyone to stop doing it because I think they're doing it for a reason. Like they're conforming for reasons that I don't understand. Um, but I have a strange, like the way I've moved through my life has also been often that I'm spurred on by a single sentence that one person says to me once. Like um, after I'd moved to England to go to this, to continue Waldorf school, then after one year, all the Waldorf schools met up in this college called Emerson College um, for the 12 year meetup. Um, and I was supposed to continue the year after to finish my A-levels. But then when I got to this college, I was so enchanted by this place. And then one of the teachers of this program that was running there, that is quite similar to YIP, um, it was called the Orientation Program. But they approached me and said, would you be interested in, in leaving your school and coming here instead for a year? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And then at the end of that year, one of my teachers said, have you thought about studying psychology at university? And I'd given up university because I wasn't doing my A-levels. And you need to have those grades in order to get into university. And I was like, yeah. So I just wrote to universities and started psychology, which was a terrible idea. And I changed quickly to a different subject. <laughs> but it got me to Aberdeen. Mm. And it's been often that it's just been these... Or like when I bought my first guitar, the girl who took me to buy the guitar, she was like, you shouldn't, don't learn too many of other people's songs. Otherwise, it will be difficult to stay in your own creativity. Mm. So I only learned House of the Rising Sun. And then I started writing and performing straight away. Mm. Like it was just, I don't know. So it, I feel like they've been helping me keep out of traps <laughs> in a way. Um, and I can't, from that, it's not like I can come with some major piece of advice to help people lift themselves out of the constrictions that they experience in their lives, which I think many people do, especially the constriction of having to make money, like having to feel secure. Because I, I get asked often... Um, when people ask me what I do, and I say I, I make films, and, and they say, oh, can you make a living doing that? So that's like kind of the most boring yeah. question and the most common question that I ever yeah. get. But uh, let me just be boring enough to ask that to you, because you run this for yeah. Adlad, uh, which, I mean, from a, let's say, a bank's point of view who were to give you financing or something, mm. it would seem like a terrible idea. Like, mm. this is just doesn't scale up and it doesn't... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, but can you... Do you make your living from, from that? And how does that work? Yeah. Mm. I have a very good life. Like, I live in a dream. I mean, I live... This is where I hang out every day. And I eat well. I have a good social life. I have somewhere to live. I live with the, the fermenting kitchen. We get on well most of the time. Um, and I also am a teacher. Um, so it, I can't really 
come around to any other conclusion that I'm, I'm making a good living, like a really good living. Um, and I've never died. Like, it's gone well so far. That's also the thing, I think, <laughs> with this security thing. It's like, have you got any evidence to suggest that it's going to go terribly wrong? Because sometimes, obviously, not obviously, of course I feel that. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I've got no house insurance. Don't tell anyone. Um, but it, I have no evidence from a scientific perspective to tell me that that's not working out because it has worked out very well so far. 37 years it's been working out. So yes, I make a good living. Nice. That's the way I... Do you, do you want to have a bank answer also? <laughs> no, no, I don't care about that. That's part of the old story. Yeah. <laughs> No, but that's how I measure success also. When people ask, oh, how are you, do you make a living from this? And I'm, I think, and I'm like, yes, the last time I went to the grocery store, yeah. I had money in the account to buy for yeah. the groceries that I yeah. purchased. And uh, I, I live and I eat and yeah. I play and I work. and mm. Yeah, but I liked your, I haven't died even once. <laughs> no, exactly. I'm living, so living. <laughs> and then I also like, when I stopped... Oh no, maybe not the supermarket thing. But um, I haven't traveled widely, actually. Like I've par- my grandparents lived in Texas, so we went there. And my other grandparents lived in Holland, so we went there. They were like the trips. And then when I graduated, then I, as I said, I often went from people I knew to people I knew. Um, and, but recently I went to visit my sister who lives in Cambodia. And that was the first time I'd been, no, actually I'd been also to visit my sister when she lived in Tanzania. And I've been to Ethiopia. So a couple of times I've been in places where people have a completely different daily reality and a completely different relationship to money. And that helps me when I feel insecure. I'm like, I am wealthy. Like I am extremely financially wealthy. But you don't have house insurance. But I don't have house insurance. And most people in the world don't have that either. And I, compared to them, have so much money. You have a house. I have a house. Just just if when I get into insecurity moments, I'm like, this is the reality of the world that we live in. Mm. And I am wealthy. Beautiful. Thank you. What is switching topics completely? getting a bit emotional (laughs) (sighs) what is regenerative agriculture that's like a word now Mm. but can you what is it when you explain it regenerative agriculture is coming to a place and making it more alive than it was before I think And I think often you use regenerative agriculture in connection to old land that has been in agriculture, which has been, what is that word? De-generated? No. Destroyed. No, there's a... Degraded. Degraded. Yeah. That the quality of the land and the environment has become less and less. Um... And regenerative agriculture, I would connect very much with biodynamic agriculture because that is also the main 
goal is to every year improve it. Like every year there's more biodiversity, every year there's more life, and every year there's more connection to the cosmos through that. Not that I think about that as daily, honestly, but um, but you're, yeah, it's making it better. And also I, I think of it as making it better, not for only for us, not only for getting more food, but like uh, you can imagine like an environment which is well, it's living, it's very loud. There's lots of insects and birds and, and then there's also a healthy food being produced there. And that's regenerating that like we want to aim for, <clears throat> aim for environments that are more living. Mm. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> and someone else would obviously give a completely different answer. To obviously, <laughs> yeah. But we don't care about them right no. now. No, <laughs> We might care about them some other day. Not this day. Mm. So, <clears throat> I'm going to read. Yeah. It seems the way we feed ourselves is causing climate change. No. <clears throat> it seems the way we feed ourselves is causing climate change and loss of biodiversity. Does it have to be that way? Do you have a vision of how it could be? I do. I agree that the way we're feeding ourselves at the moment is a major contributor to the crisis that we find ourselves in now. <clears throat> and I, I don't always see a clear road to a better way. But I see more and more small gardens and more and more community gardens popping up um, where people are growing small amounts of many things and are connecting people to the land. I think that has to be the way. That's one thing and that's vegetables which is also good to remember that often these beautiful projects are vegetables and actually what we eat most of is grains and proteins. Um, and I want to say, yeah, I'm not... I still think the biodynamic model is very good for that. Like, because the biodynamic, like an ideal biodynamic form is animals, vegetables, wild areas, grains, all in uh, rotation with people. Um, and they can be scaled up enormously. I mean, there are very successful financially and environmentally biodynamic farms in other places, in India and in Germany. Um, and in England and every Camp Hill, it's still, even if the many things around Camp Hill have collapsed, there's almost always still the farm and garden as the center. And they are incredibly efficient at the same time as being environmentally beneficial ways of producing food. Mm. Um, 
I think there, or I know that there is no future for the large-scale industrial farming model. And we all know it, even though we're still forging on, like, through the Amazon and because we've already destroyed all of Europe, mostly. Mm. Um, no, that was dramatic. Destroyed Europe. No, we haven't destroyed Europe. <laughs> but um, we've done a lot of deforesting and degradation already. And now we're helping those things continue in parts of the world that we don't see. Mm. And there is, that's a dark, dark future. And it's completely unnecessary. That is bewildering and very disheartening often, I think. When it's so clear to everyone, I feel like it must be clear to everyone now that this is very bad. Yeah. So yes and no. Like I don't see the exact, I don't see the, the exact route, but um, I also feel like it would be beneficial if we started making those the future stories more than the dystopian mega cities with mega pig breeding, whatever horrible nightmarish scenarios that people are willing to paint as a future, which is completely open, the future. I find that. I find that bewildering. Sorry, that was negative. Because it could look like very diverse. No. Oh, sorry. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. I have had a thought though with is it okay if I side spore? Yeah. If I <laughs> <laughs> side spore? Yeah, side spore. Um, like I've been thinking about this, like with regenerative agriculture and with the kind of gardening that I and many people I know are are doing, where you have very many things growing and you also encourage the surrounding environment to be alive. Like you want to have spaces where many different kinds of insects and beetles can inhabit and that's both beneficial for your garden but it's also beneficial for many other species and that that's a point in itself but that there is also like we built cities I think because we're also very afraid of nature like I was shocking being stung by a bumblebee and I love bumblebees but still it gives me a moment of like oh, danger and that the more living the environment becomes, the more other species we'll be living with. And that that is not a simple thing either. Like we've gotten rid of most of the animals which we consider to be dangerous. We can't stand living with nature, actually. And that, I'm like, wow, that is a tension that is super exciting. And I hope that it's, I'm like, I'm not going to be, I can't tell a story to solve that thing, but I hope that that becomes an exciting future story. Like the way that we learn to live together, like really consciously, again. And that's gonna play in. Like that's also why people are, not everyone gets into gardening. Like people are still really like scared of worms and bees and flies. I'm scared of mosquitoes. <laughs> 
Yeah, I was so scared of flies when I grew up. Actually, I didn't. No, I was like, I tried to jump out of windows. I was so afraid of house flies. Mm-hmm. Like we also there. There's some, and that's to do with some other story that I didn't create. In a way, mm-hmm. it like we're complicated. Yeah. But um, yeah, I I hope that we can make have a really creative relationship to nature that's new actually a new story there I, I think that we need a new story really if we're going to move forward because otherwise the city thing is always going to be there the more and more division mm. between us and other living things mm. all right uh, I'm moving on to fermentation ah. Ah. <laughs> <clears throat> how did your love for fermented food begin I'm assuming you're in love with food fermentation. <laughs> mm, yes, I am. It began. Um, I it actually began when I moved to Sweden, like in between the November recording in Finland and the season starting in April. Then I lived in a an anarchist collective in Stockholm for three months with four people who I hadn't met before, and they had a book called Wild Fermentation. So I would say it's partly that collective where they were trying things like we brewed banana stout over the wood fire and there was kimchi bubbling over, literally just bubbling over onto the mantelpiece. And and then there was this book, Wild Fermentation. And I saw that. I didn't do, I didn't actively engage with that book at the time. Mm-hmm. But the seed was sown. <laughs> and then I moved to Yana and I was working two seasons for other gardeners, and then I started my own garden. And then I became overwhelmed with the harvest. And then the book came back. (laughs) And then I, yeah, so I, it was partly getting overwhelmed by the harvest. It was also, I started brewing beer before and mead because I had some English friends and we were all horrified by the prices at Systembolaget. And so we started homebrewing. And that was also with this book. But then actually it is the book that was the key for me. It's written by a man called Sandor Katz. And he had such a, he has such a also expansive way of talking about fermentation, such a global perspective that you, I was completely swallowed by that. Like it opened a world for me. And then it was just to go in. And then there's vegetables, and then there's milk, and then there's yeast, and then there's compost. Like everything was more exciting, even though I couldn't see it. Like, and I also think, I think about it still, like I still don't own a microscope. But I'm very, like in very active relationship with bacteria and yeasts, which I always have been. But now it's more uh, conscious. So I would say that that is where it, where it happened. And then I learned more about the health aspects, even though I'm still, like I eat fermented food every day and I'm, I'm sure that that is good. But I am not that interested actually. Mm. I'm more interested in the, the human relationship with fermentation and that I'm participating in something which is, deeply 
human nature. It's kind of to do with that, what I was talking about with relating, like having a relationship with other life. And in which way are you having a relationship with other life while fermenting? Um, well, I'm creating an environment for multiple species of bacteria and yeasts and other things also things that are not necessarily friendly but I'm creating environments for um, incredible diversity and richness of life but on like trillions level or at least billions in a jar or whatever like creating environments but also um taking food somewhere else like it's not it's alive and then i'll boil it it's like it's alive and it's alive it's just more life like um and there are species which i yeah i can't see they can harm not they not the the lactobacteria the lactobacillus don't harm me but like it's a it's a part of the natural world which humans in the recent past have been incredibly afraid of, even though we're always surrounded by bacteria and mushrooms and viruses and everything. But we've become obsessively afraid of it. And fermentation is a very quick way to move away from that fear. Like you leave food on surfaces at room temperature for days or weeks or even months, and then you eat it without heating it or doing anything else. It's completely different. And now I've started making cheese and that actually was pushing my boundaries. <laughs> I made cheese and I made this shelf because I have a friend who's a cheesemaker in Ireland, Vincenzo. And then they went moldy. Like, I mean, really, really moldy. Like there was colors. First there was white and then a bit of green, but there was also black and there was pink. <laughs> and I sent a picture to him and I was like, no, it's too far. And he's like, no, just cut off the, the outside. It's probably delicious. <laughs> and I almost didn't. I almost was like, this is, I've reached my limit. But it was amazing. It was totally delicious. <laughs> but um, yeah, what was I trying to say? I can't remember. Got lost in the cheese. But yeah, it's a, there's a lot of life. There was a lot of different species there of mushrooms that I had cultivated or helped, given space and then, oh. Hmm. That's what I mean by participating with other life, non-humans. Here's another word. So we, we did the um, regenerative agriculture, which is a, a, like a thing. Mm. Um, probiotics. What, what is that when you describe it? Probiotics are, that's a good question. I actually think I'll need to look it up again. Because I think like probiotics are living, like something that you eat that has living bacteria in it. Um, but I think we say it because it helps our own biota, like our own bacterial community. So we eat bacteria to help our system that's probiotic so you can take it in a 
tablet form or you take it in a food form. So probiotics are kimchi, kombucha, uh, sauerkraut, um, cheese. Although I don't know if cheese actually would be included. Yeah, because that's bacteria and molds. But usually you use it in connection with kimchi, sauerkraut, kombucha, mm. kefir, mm. and tablets. Mm. Right, let's see what we have on the list. Um, oh, here's a fun one. <laughs> Are you enjoying yourself? Is this all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah great. Good. Do I not look like I'm doing Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, it feels like we're doing pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Nice. So when I compare the food production that I see at the field next to my house and the one that I see in your garden, the striking difference is diversity or lack thereof. Mm. What role does crop diversity play or what role should crop diversity play in food production? Hmm. I think that crop diversity is absolutely fundamental to regenerative agriculture and to the future of a stable food production. Um, like monoculture, like we have many of just one plant, is incredibly draining on soil. And it's a starvation tactic for animals. Like you have a lot of food at one time and then everything dries up. It's a disaster for insects. And often is sprayed with chemicals to enable that completely unbalanced way of growing to continue. And also, like for me, I get have a huge problem with um, different insects that attack cabbage. And they are a lot of them are due to the fact that around this area there are many people who grow monocultures of wraps, for example, rapeseed. Um, Uh, I think there's, I'm really excited about the idea of even big farms, like even grains, for example, being incorporated into the garden size of growing, um, like intercropping much more than even small farms like in this area are doing. But then I, um, like in biodynamic agriculture, you have the green manure is really important for the vitality of the soil and a green manure is a huge mix of different plants from different kingdoms that should be remain where they are for one preferably two years or more um, and that is a way of um, enlivening the soil from the draining the drainage that happens when you grow vegetable or grain crops Hmm. It's a complicated question, actually, I think. That we, there's absolutely no question. Of course, we need a huge diversity of crops. We need many more different kinds of vegetables also. And many more different kinds of grains. We've gotten totally... We've minimized, we've lost so many species, so many varieties of plants just within the last hundred years. And that is going to be problematic or it already is problematic um, but yeah we're also yeah 
It's like there is never enough diversity. That's my feeling. Like even in my garden, where it looks very diverse compared to a, a rape field. God, it sounds very bad when I say that in English, but that's what it's called. <laughs> is that the proper name? Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, Just an old field of rape. It's an old field of soil rape. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but I always feel like there's not enough plants in my garden together. It's like, wow, it's too many cabbages all in the same place, in a way, even though I'm not quite, I'm not quite ready to let go of rows, personally. But, um, yeah, diversity is absolutely key. Mm. Crop diversity. Mm. Beautiful. So, <clears throat> what does healthy soil mean to you? And how does that relate to a healthy body? Mm. Hmm. Well, it's when we're having this conversation, I, I don't have very deep conversations that often about this kind of thing. And I noticed that that question is something which, like when I don't know how to answer a question for myself or when something's like come and I'm like, ah, that kind of doesn't agree with what I've been thinking so far. Then I leave it in this like space in my brain where it just gets to hover. And that question is there at the moment in this hovering, like, what is that connection? What does it mean, healthy soil? And I'm going to say, can I, I'm also talking a lot about biodynamic agriculture, but we'll just do that. Yeah. Because I've always thought about, there's these preparations that you use in biodynamic agriculture, um, which are made in a way which some people find very difficult to accept. Um, they involve animal organs and different plants. Very few. So there's definitely no animals are harmed in this process. They were already dead for other purposes. Um, anyway, probably shouldn't have dropped that in. Everyone's <laughs> going to be like, what? <laughs> anyway, there's this... the the. There's a field preparation that you use at the beginning of the year, which is called Preparation 500. And it was called Preparation 500 because there's like 500 million or billion, I can't remember, aerobic, like good bacteria per milli something. I can't remember. But 500 million or trillion or billion bacteria. Many. Many. It's very rich. It's like an incredibly rich compost. <clears throat> that you dilute a lot and aerate um, or allow to be cosmically enhanced. Maybe not or, both. But you're, you basically stir it very vigorously for an hour. And I have very often said, and I think about that preparation as a bacterial inoculant. Like, because I, especially since I've been fermenting, then I've learned a lot more about bacteria and the way they interact with each other. So if, for example, you spray out a lot of one bacteria, then it can change the bacteria that are already there. Because bacteria have the capacity to genetically exchange information with each other. They're not so individualistic as we are. Like, they can change their DNA. Um, so I easily think about that preparation as an inoculant. And then I was recently listening to the Agriculture Course, which is a series of lectures that Rudolf Steiner gave in 
1924, and the whole of biodynamic agriculture is based on those lectures, which were over four days. Um, and then he says, if you're thinking about the preparations as an inoculant, you're thinking about it in the wrong way. And that, that the bacteria is full, or that the soil is full of life and and bacteria is not the thing in itself. It's that you have created a good soil and therefore they are there. And that was the thing which I read that I'm like, my brain is, is not there yet. So I've put it in that space where it can float. <laughs> um, so I wouldn't, because I would want to say first maybe, oh, it's very alive. Like there's lots of things in it and that's a living soil. But I'm not, I'm not willing to say that that's exactly what it is. That's definitely how it would look though. Like it would be very alive. There's, it will be a wild diversity of microorganisms and macro organisms, as in like small animals. Mm. And very simply, if you have more life, then you have more access to more of the um, beneficial substances in the soil that are being fed to plants. So you get plants that have a much higher nutritional value and that will be much better for us. And a healthy soil will also support plants that don't need to be sprayed or over-fertilized. And that will also be very beneficial for us. Like plants that get everything from the soil, and I don't mean from what we put on the soil, but from the soil itself are nutritionally much richer. I can't find any reason to think that that wouldn't be true. Um, also, I believe that eating food from a garden or a place which is not murderously destroying other species must be spiritually better for us also, and therefore more nutritious. If that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Um... If we look at a field of depleted dirt from years of industrial farming, what would it take and how long would it take to restore it? And what would the side effects be from such a restoration? Ooh. Hmm. I have no idea. Hmm. It's also very different from dirt to dirt. Hmm. Um... But what I would like to see with really degraded soils is that we are really patient with them. Not like to try and as much as possible not fill it up with substances from the outside. Like to not buy in lots of organic material, for example, to fill it up. But to allow the soil to start recovering, to support the soil's own recovery. And that happens mostly by the action of plants. That there's a sequence of plants. Like there are certain plants which are really good at establishing in devastated soils. And they will gradually make habitat for other like microorganisms, macroorganisms and other plants. But to be present in that, like because those we've create such a terrible degradation that it's difficult for soils to recover 
alone. Like, I think that we can participate very positively in that kind of regeneration. Um, that's also part of that, really. I think that will help us also create a better relationship to the environment. So, if this is sort of a philosophical question, and yeah, we'll see where it goes. Um, and I kind of ask this to, to different people just to see what their response will be. So you don't feel like you have to give the answer, but just whatever impulse comes to you. So the question is, if we, as a civilization or humanity or whatever, we want to call ourselves, if we are heading in the wrong direction, um, and it's, it seems to me that we are, uh, as far as loss of biodiversity and... Uh, mm different crises heading our way. Um, what would the beginning of a right direction look like? I don't think we're heading in the wrong direction. Right now, this is what's coming to me. I think that we're, we only have the direction that we have, and this is it. All of it. Because we're also heading in multiple directions. Yeah, I think or I feel that we are moving. I don't think that we have a particular trajectory, like that there's an absolutely decided destiny for mankind or the world. Um, I think maybe I feel more free if I think that way. Like I can, not that I agree that we've made good, I don't think we've made good decisions. Maybe generally I avoid in my mind thinking about good or bad or wrong and right. Um, we have had a trajectory that has been incredibly destructive. Um, and I think more and more people are actively and consciously trying to engage with that difficulty like the difficulty in understanding ourselves as the, the perpetrators of environmental collapse and species collapse and social injustice and slavery now also, I think, which is once again, like that we have to be able to stay with the trouble. And I'm, that's a quote from someone else actually, but I think it's so nice, not nice, but just stay with it like it's really hard and it's really complicated and complex what we're living in the world and to be human also that we have the capacity to hold so many things in ourselves at the same time like the amazing beauty of a flower and the fear of a mosquito and then the knowledge that cities are created out of destroyed mountains and the sound of a bubbling brook like, I don't know, but we have an unbelievable capacity to stay with it and, yeah, to try and not reach conclusions before, the, before they reach out to us or even to not aim for conclusions at all. Like, that there, I hope that the future is something beyond my capacity to imagine it. I hope it's beautiful, but... Um, I don't want to spend too much time trying to make it before it happens. Like, 
So that's a non-answer, kind of. But um, to stay with the trouble, like to be able and to give space to the, the enormous difficulty of seeing what's happening and stay with it. And things will change. Thank you so much for now. Mm? Thank you so much, Matthias. <laughs> We've reached the end. Yet, it's not quite the end. I have one last treat for you, which is one of Bridget's songs called The Tree Above Me. Before we listen to that, though, I would like to acknowledge the all the other musicians who have appeared in one way or another in this episode. First of all, there's the group of uh, students from the Youth Initiative program that performed their song, uh, Song to the Earth. Uh, their names are uh, Sachi Tanya Riley Jasper. She is the, the lead singer, and I believe also she is the one who has written the song. The other musicians in the band are Michael Joseph McMahon, Hedvig Barchuk, Chi Fang Wu, Kenshu Toyota, and Elfine Radvansky. I would also like to thank uh, the musician who made the soundtrack for the film Into the Soil and whose music I also borrowed a little bit for the intro, intro to this episode. His name is Arvid Rask. He has also collaborated for this last song that you're about to hear. So the, the guitar and the song is from Bridget, but all the other um, composition a- around the song, so to speak, is by composed by Arvid Rask. So thank you to all these beautiful musicians who were part of this podcast episode. And thank you to you who have listened all the way to the end. Be well until the next time. <laughs>